Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1. Begin reading in verse number 8 as we pick up where we left off last week. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that Tom just sang, that we are definitely the reason for Jesus' life on this earth, for his crucifixion. Father, you chose to send your son not just to remove our sin, but to make us holy, to make us like Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would help us through the passage today see that as our, our pursuit to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, speak to us through your word this morning and help us to live out what you command in Jesus' name. Amen. Our series in Philippians is called The Mind of Christ. We don't need to sit and wonder what God wants from us because he's told us. He's given us the word of God. We have the Bible to learn about his desire of holiness for us. And in the book of Philippians, we are given Jesus as the great example as to whom we are to follow. Uh, he, uh, that's Philippians chapter 2 is uh, that, uh, that theme passage of which we're trying to memorize part of it. Uh, if you'd say it with me, the first couple verses of our theme passage, Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if you're working on it at home alone, go the next couple verses and you'll see how that flows into, these first two verses flow into those, uh, because Jesus came to be our uh, propitiation, to be our sin for us, and to be our example of how we ought to humble ourselves, how we ought to put God's priorities ahead of our own. Last week, we noted the koinonia of the gospel, that uh, very rich and deep Greek word that we often translate as fellowship, that we have to dig a little deeper in because uh, oftentimes our idea of fellowship is much more shallow than the biblical term implies. Biblical in term implies a combination of a relationship and activity. So our fellowship of, as a church is not just about us belonging to the same group or having the same likes or desires is that we have an activity together. We have this, this ongoing action as the people of God. 
This week we continue in this, uh, this introductory prayer that Paul writes out for the Philippian believers as he expresses his love for them, a love that produces a prayer for their growth. And so we'll see today that our big idea is godly people love God's people and seek their growth. So Paul is, is demonstrating this for us. Paul, as a godly person, loves God's people and is seeking their spiritual growth. So the first thing we're going to see this morning is in verse 8, gospel love cares like Christ. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is, is in chains. He's imprisoned. He's not with the Philippian believers. He's unable to show them the love that he has for them in person. Uh, and because he can't demonstrate his love, because he's locked up actually for the gospel, it's because of, uh, of his gospel message that he has been imprisoned. Uh, he, he cannot demonstrate his love for the Philippians as he would like to, but God knows. He says, as God is my witness, God knows, and God will be the proof for the Philippians that they would realize and understand how much Paul really does continue to care for them. He says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. There are things that we desire. There are people we desire to be with. There are uh, perhaps foods that we really, really are hungry for. But because we can't have it, we yearn for it more. I think I've shared this before. I'm going to share it again. When we lived in Texas... There were no Taco Johns. There weren't any. The only place you could find a Taco John in Texas is on a military base, and you got to have special permission to get there and go to that. So we didn't have Taco Johns. I'm actually not that big of a fan of Taco Johns. But when I couldn't have it, I wanted it, right? We long for things that we can't have, and Paul's expressing that. He yearns to be with the Philippians, and he can't be with them. I would love to be with you in person and have this conversation face-to-face, -face, but I cannot. So he's writing this letter. Love in our culture is primarily viewed as an emotion, something that either you feel it or you don't, and if you feel it for someone, then great, and if you stop feeling it for your spouse, then, well, that's okay, too. You can get out of that marriage. We, we think of feeling, we, our culture, that grand we, uh, thinks of uh, love primarily as an emotion, but in contrast, the love that we see from Paul is more than affection. In fact, uh, the love that the Bible talks about often is more than simply Feeling, uh, now don't get me wrong, feeling and affection is part of it, but biblical love, this agape as he speaks of here, is a, a commitment, a commitment to seek the best for the other, regardless of the other individual's ability to reciprocate. That's biblical love. This is the love of Christ, to pursue the best, pursue what the other needs no matter how much it costs, no matter the fact that the other 
cannot love us back in return. This is exactly how Christ loves us. He loves us even though the love that we return to him at best is weak and feeble by comparison. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's saying the the affection that Jesus has, that's the affection that I have for you. Uh, This was written in uh, in Greek originally. It was in the Greek culture, and in the Greek culture, their understanding of where your sense of love comes from was the bowels. And so the word he used there is, I have the bowels of Christ. Now, if we were to put that in today's context, we don't think of bowels as the center of our affection, and and we're actually glad for that, don't we? we? We think of the heart as the center of affection. So to put this verse into a a more contemporary speak, uh, Paul is saying, Christ's heart for you is my heart for you. The way that Christ's heart beats for you is how my heart beats for you. He's trying to express just how much he really does love these believers, this church that that he had a hand in helping to start, this church that he's been able to see grow from a distance. Again, he's been gone for a good 10 years from the church, and so lots has changed over the 10 years, and he still has this great affection and compassion for these believers. And so what he's saying is that The love that I have for you is the the love that Christ has for you. Well, what is the love of Christ? What is the, the love that Christ has for these believers? What is Christ's affection and compassion for them? Well, our theme passage actually has a lot to say about that. We we read do some of you have the first two verses memorized? I almost do, but I memorized them in multiple translations before, and it's hard to memorize it in the ESV. If you're with me, I'm sorry. That's just how we're rolling. Uh, But the next few verses in that theme passage, uh, verses 6 and 8, tell us how Jesus loved us. He emptied himself for us, setting aside the glories of heaven so that we might have salvation. It says, by taking the form of a servant, he, he left his position as uh, being right at the right hand of God the Father to become fully man while retaining his full godness, if you'll excuse my grammar there. He became a servant. The ruler of all creation came to be a servant for mankind and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus lived in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit for all of eternity past, never experiencing pain, never experiencing lack. And yet he chose to go through all those hard things that you and I go through to become a man. To know what it was like to suffer. To actually experience death 
and separation from God the Father, all for us. That's how he loved us. Verse 8 of chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even the most cruel kind of death, the death on the cross. The affection and compassion of Jesus, the Messiah, is a love that holds nothing in reserve, holds nothing back. Paul says, this is the love that I have for you. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the love that I have for you. As your pastor, I pray for you all. If you have a job, I pray for uh, you to have success in your job and good relationships in your job. If you're a farmer, I pray for safety. And I pray for the weather. I pray for a good crop for you. For the homemaker, I pray for you to have serenity while living inside your vocation. That can be hard. For those of you who have health problems or are otherwise weak, I pray for you to have strength and healing. All of those are good things to pray for one another. But more pressing than any of those needs, I pray that God would do his good work in your life. And sometimes that prayer request conflicts with the other prayer requests, doesn't it? Because for God to have his perfect work in your life, your work at the life at, that you have at your job, your, your vocation, isn't always going to go easy. If God's going to have his work in your life, he's going to increase your faith. So that might mean for the farmer that the weather is just going to be awful. And for the business owner, it might mean that you're going to have a hard time getting supply. That's really happening right now, isn't it? You're going to have a hard time with sales or, or other hardships that come into life. For God to have his work in your life, he might have to keep you from having your optimum health and strength. But you see, if life went easy at work, we wouldn't need to have the faith that we're supposed to have and trust God through it. And if our health was always just running at 100% efficiency, we would be so less likely to actually depend on God for what we do and what we have. Paul's yearning for the people is not just that they would have a, a joyful, easy life. His yearning is directly attached to what Christ wants for them. And that puts a completely different spin on things, doesn't it? Because what, what, what we want for ourselves and what we want when we're being kind, when we, what we want for others is the good life. God doesn't promise that. In fact, he promises the opposite. He promises that life will be hard but that he will stick with us through those hardships. Why 
what does Jesus want in all believers' lives? Well, to answer that question is to give you the idea of what Paul's affection is for the people in Philippi. And we'll see that played out in the next few verses. So gospel love cares like Christ. Secondly, gospel love seeks growth. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So the first element that Jesus wants for our lives and Paul expresses for the lives of the Philippians is that we would love, that selfless love, that agape love that we've been talking about. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus expresses to his disciples, remember this is just before he's to be crucified, so this is some of the the last teachings that he gives to his disciples. In John 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he basically repeats it in reverse order in the next verse. By this, all people will know that uh, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we understand that word love to be this selfless love, He's saying to his disciples, I have selflessly loved you. You are to now selflessly love one another. And when you selflessly love one another, the world will see that selfless love. And they will know that you are my disciples. Here in Philippians 1, Paul is in essence repeating this command from John 13. But he gives it an additional emphasis He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That word abound, to be in excess, to be overflowing, uh, to be otherwise more than normal expectations. The word abound by itself is a superlative. uh, To have the most amount of overflowing of love that you can have. Then Paul pairs that superlative with more and more. So if a superlative, it would be like the word best. Uh, Can you get better than best? No, it's the best. But Paul says, I want it to be the best and more and more of the best. I want your love to abound, to be as full as it can be and overflowing, and keep growing more and more. So there's a threefold redundancy here as Paul expresses his prayer for the believer's love to grow and to continue to grow, to be excessive, to be unnatural, to be, to, to be supernatural in its growth and to never diminish. Believers, love each other and keep loving each other more and more and more. Love God the Son more and more and in greater ways. Love God the Father. Love the Spirit. Go at it with this love and never back down. Live your life with a life centered in God's love and emulate that more and more. It's my prayer that your love would abound more and more, verse 9, with knowledge and all discernment. We're going to see here the second part of verse 9 through verse 11, that gospel love centers on spiritual maturity. Gospel love cares like Christ cares. It seeks growth, 
and it centers on spiritual maturity. So the next elements that Jesus wants in all believers that Paul prays for is knowledge and discernment. Knowledge is information. We can't possibly grow in Jesus Christ if we don't have the information to know how, right? Discernment is having a right and clear understanding of that information, a right and clear understanding of that information that leads to right choices. Now, that's not a, a dictionary definition, but I think it's a good working definition of how Paul is using that word in this passage. That we would understand what we ought to know about God, about Jesus Christ, about his church, and that we would make right choices as a result of that knowledge. Well, to what end? Is this knowledge and discernment so that we might understand, understand money better and make better retirement investments? No, of course not. Is this knowledge and discernment about health so that we can judge what foods would be best for us and what we should avoid? No. This knowledge and discernment has a desired end. Verse 10, so that, very key words here, so that, I want you to grow in love and knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verses 10 and 11 are packed full of elements that Jesus wants to be exhibited in all believers and for which Paul prays. Says that you may approve what is excellent, to decide on excellence according to God's standard. All over scripture we find that God's people are to stand in contrast to the society around them and this is no different. Now it's not that the world doesn't have some form of excellence. It does. Um, that phone that you, uh, that you reliably communicate on with people you might even be texting each other here in the building, but you, you can talk to people all around the world quite reliably. That's evidence of excellence in the world, is it not? Or that, uh, that uh, salad you have sitting in your refrigerator that hasn't gone all wilty yet because the refrigerator keeps it at a constant 40 degrees temperature relies on the electrical infrastructure in your house to be excellent and functional and relies on uh, the electric grid to get it to your house and relies on producers to produce electricity through uh, coal power and gas power and wind power, however it comes. All that has to be excellent in order for that salad to stay good, right? So the world has some form of excellence in some things and we're thankful for it. That's not what he's talking about here. We're not talking about a quality of a job well done. We're talking about uh, the, the moral quality of excellence. Approving what is excellent is about pursuing qualities and actions that God calls excellent. Here's one way that we approve excellence as God's people that stands in contrast to much of our culture today. God created male and female, and he called it good. That shouldn't stand in contrast to society. That should be self-evident. And yet here we are. Approving what is excellent is looking at the basic 
unit of family that God created. He created a man and woman, and, and he created the relationship of husband and wife. He created the church to be Christ's body on earth. And until he returns, he calls us to be the pillar and buttress of truth, to be the ones who hold high God's truth. That is pursuing God's excellence, championing his truth, being, as people of God, being about his work. That is pursuing his excellence. So this knowledge and discernment that we should be increasing in is seeing and approving of things the same way God does. Not necessarily the same way other people do. So if we are growing in in knowledge and discernment and thus pursuing God's type of excellence, we will be pure and blameless, fully prepared for when we see Jesus in person. It's that last part of verse 10 there. You will experience the day of Jesus Christ. You will. Will you be prepared? If you've come to a point in your life where you've recognized your sin and you have turned from it and received the gift of Jesus Christ by trusting in him and him alone for your salvation to make you righteous, then you will be fully prepared to see him face to face. Our job, in the meantime, is to continue growing in holiness so that the way we act matches the way Jesus says we are. Right? See, Jesus declares us righteous and holy. When we come to him in faith, by his sacrifice, we are declared righteous and holy. It's on us then to grow in actually acting that out, living holy lives, because you can be made holy and still act like a sinner. Your car has warning lights. Depending on how old your car is, uh, if you have a car new enough, you have a warning light that yells at you constantly if you don't put your seatbelt on. Come on. It's a little bit annoying. Or if you run out of window windshield washer fluid, you have a little warning light telling you that you need to refill. There's this other light. It's the, the engine light. And maybe it says check engine. That's always odd because every time I open the hood, there it is. That check engine light doesn't really mean anything, does it? It comes on and you don't know why. Until you get uh, someone with a reader to plug it in and tell you why. It, it might be something very simple like you've got an oxygen sensor not working very well. So you'll burn a little bit more gas. Otherwise, your car's going to run fine. But when that check engine light is flashing, you pull over and you stop. Because that means there's something very, 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 very wrong and you're going to do some expensive damage to your engine. That was free. If your engine light is flashing, just don't drive it home. If you are not growing in holiness, that's not the annoying seatbelt light or the doesn't really matter uh, check engine light 
that is the check engine light flashing at you. That is, there is something dramatically wrong in your spiritual life if you are not seeing some growth over time. I'm not saying that everyone should look at our own lives and, and, and be perfectly satisfied with where we are in our holiness. We, we should always yearn to grow more like Jesus Christ. And yes, we're not going to get there until we see him face to face. But the fact of the matter is, if you can look over the course of your life over the last months and years and decades and not see spiritual growth, that is a serious warning. Because God's desire for us, verse 11, is that we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is in you, if, if the Holy Spirit has, has taken you because you've some surrendered in faith to him, and, and the Holy Spirit has come and lived in you, and there is no fruit production And there's a significant problem. Paul's prayer continues that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So let's work out the sequence here of Paul's prayer. He said that their love and knowledge and discernment would all grow. And when those are growing, it leads to pursuing God's excellence and it leads to holiness or righteousness. coincides here with the realities of verse 11, being characterized as righteous, a righteousness that is produced through Jesus Christ. This is actually an ongoing theme throughout the book of Philippians. We're going to pick this up again, uh, at least in chapter 3, if not before, how, uh, yes, we have an obligation to pursue righteousness but the holiness that we have is the holiness from Jesus Christ Jesus makes us righteous and then we pursue acting and thinking and speaking rightly yet our righteousness comes from him most if not all of us in this room have a friend or family member someone we know who is relying on their own righteousness to get themselves to heaven. Many people who claim no religion, when pressed with the question, well, if there really is a God, why do you think God would, uh, would give you eternal life or, or let you into heaven? And they would respond something along the lines that, well, I'm good enough. Or my, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, so I'm okay. It's a normal way for people to think. So it's very common for people to think that way. Adam and Eve did. They listened to the serpent and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God told them not to, and they believed that they could fix it with God because they knew something was wrong. They thought they could fix it by sewing together some fig leaves and covering their nakedness. The root of the lie the devil told Adam and Eve echoes in the hearts of mankind today. The serpent told Eve that it would be okay if they could do what they want. And so today, people live as though they are okay with God, even though they go against God's clear commands. 
The only righteousness that saves is a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes verse 11 with the phrase, to the glory and praise of God. A righteousness that is rooted in us is not to make us proud, not to, uh, to, to help us say, look at me, I'm living for Jesus, you should do so also. No, it's not about that at all. It's that we might bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. What does it mean to praise and glorify God? My knee-jerk reaction to that question would be music. Maybe that's because I'm musical. But we have many songs that, uh, that uplift the nature and stature of God, that proclaim his goodness and greatness, and music really, good, good gospel praise songs are not a wrong answer to that question. We think of uh, what it means to praise and glorify God. We think of, of saying things like, praise the Lord. And does that bring glory and praise to God? Yeah. It does. Maybe we think of reading passages of the scripture that honor God. But the scripture tells us right here in today's passage that we praise and glorify God by growing in knowledge and discernment and holiness, being filled with Christ's righteousness. Yes, singing and saying, reading Things can bring glory to God. But none of those will bring glory to God if our righteousness is lacking, if our godliness is lacking. We praise and glorify God by growing in these character qualities that he lays out for us today. Paul loves the Philippians and because he loves them, he wants to see them grow in Christ. That is our pattern. God's people love God's people and seek their growth. So if we are going to be the godly people that, that we ought to be and that we desire to be, then we should be seeking godly growth, not only in ourselves, but in others. And that is the highest form of love that we can seek for them. Do you love God's people? Is that love being shown in your desire to see them grow in Christ? It's our challenge for today. It's our example through Paul today. Let's go out and live it. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to pursue godliness personally. Help us to pursue godliness for others. Father, that we'll be able to express that in countless ways. Uh, but help us to show our love for one another by not neglecting to do good for them as an example. Help us to uh, demonstrate our love for one another by not allowing each other to remain in sin. When we see sinful habits and tendencies, that we, we help them break free of that. We thank you for this passage that links our holiness and our pursuit of godliness 
to the fact that you receive praise and glory when we do. So Father, help us in that light to bring honor and glory to you throughout this week as we seek to live godly lives in your sight, growing in knowledge and pursuing your excellence. We know that you will be honored in it. Your word tells us, so we ask that you would help us to bring that to fruition. So Father, thank you for our time together here today. We love you. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name.